Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay. Hello. Hey, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for listening. I have a wonderful program for you today. My guest is Katie Crouch. She is the author of a new novel called Embassy Wife, available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Embassy Wife is the official August pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online cultural magazine and literary community. It's been around for almost two decades. It has its own monthly book club. I interview book club authors on this program. For more information on the TNB book club, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com. Katie Crouch is a New York Times best-selling author of several books, including Girls in Trucks, Men and Dogs, and a novel called Abroad. You may also have read her in a variety of publications, including the New York Times, Glamour, The Guardian, Slate, Salon, and more. Really enjoyed Embassy Wife. It's one of these novels that reminded me that a book, uh, a novel in particular, can be entertaining, a page-turner, funny, smart, deeply serious, all at once. These things are not mutually exclusive, and I feel like I need periodic reminders of this. I really enjoyed reading Embassy Wife. I didn't want it to end, and I'm excited to get to talk to Katie and to share that with you in just a bit. I also want to share news of another new book. This one, also available from FSG, is called What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction by best-selling novelist Alice McDermott. What About the Baby is a collection of essays, lectures, and observations on the art of writing fiction by one of our very best. What About the Baby gathers Alice McDermott's pithiest wisdom about her chosen art form, wisdom acquired over a lifetime as an acclaimed writer and a teacher of writing. Included are stories of lessons learned, books that were read and loved, and the terrors and the joys of what Alice McDermott calls, quote, this mad pursuit. What About the Baby is a rich and valuable source book for readers and writers alike. What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction by Alice McDermott available now from FSG. Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, 
all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. Hey everybody, this is Brad Listy, the host of the Other People Podcast, and I wanted to share the news with you about a company called Scribd. Have you heard of Scribd? If you haven't, you should know about it. It is the ultimate reading subscription service, letting you explore all of your interests in any format that you choose. Ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more, all for only $9.99 a month. Think about it. You get an entire library for less than the cost of a single book. This is the perfect service for people like me, people who love to read, people who love to learn, people who might be a little bit scatterbrained, people who might need a little bit of help keeping things organized, people who want to streamline things, simplify their lives a little bit. Scribd is what you need. There are no complicated credits or additional purchases required. And if you're not sure what to read, Scribd combines the latest technology with the best human minds to recommend content that you will love. And if you want to change things up, no problem. You're free to switch between titles, genres, and formats at any time on your phone, tablet, or computer. Best of all, right now, Scribd is offering listeners of this program a free 60-day trial. Just go to try.scribd.com slash OPL for your free trial. That's try.scribd.com slash OPL to get 60 days of Scribd for free. Check out Scribd, you guys. Do it today and get reading. Okay, so it's almost time for the main event, my conversation with Katie Crouch. But before we get there, I want to wish my daughter Evan a happy 11th birthday. It's almost her birthday By the time this episode goes up, and most people have heard it, it will have been her 11th birthday. I've had Evan on the show before. For longtime listeners, you've probably heard her. I want to say I first had her on the show back when she was a toddler, almost a decade ago. And now, just like that, she's 11. I can't believe it. Uh, Happy birthday, Evan. Thank you. How does it feel to be 11? Uh, Pretty much the same. And how am I doing? What do you mean pretty much the same? It's exactly the same as when you were three? No, I mean, like, it's the same as being ten. Okay, and how am I doing as your father? Like, on a scale of one to ten, with ten being uh, excellent and one being extremely subpar. Okay, um, you you put me in an awkward position here. But, um, I'll give you a 7.9, almost an eight. 
almost an eight. Can we round up? No. <laughs> All right. I love you. I love you too. Happy birthday. Thank you. All right, everybody. That's my daughter, Evan, who's 11. What do you think about that? Uh, All right, so let's get to my conversation with today's guest, Katie Crouch. Her new novel, Embassy Wife, is available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It is the official August pick of the TNB Book Club. Very pleased to share this with you now. Here she is, folks, my conversation with Katie Crouch, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Embassy Wife. Well, um, it is very empty. It's very, very dry. Um, it's the, it is as if sort of your contrast filter has been turned up on your phone. Just everything is much brighter and um, starker than what I was used to. And I think that, um, you know, I think I was a good candidate to write about Namibia at the time because I had before I went, I was just woefully ignorant as to the place. I was went as a trailing spouse. So I didn't know much about the country at all. So I had to really like kind of encyclopedia the place. Like, oh, okay, where is it? It is um, above South Africa on the western side of the continent. Um, so the inner, the inner part is the sort of the Kalahari desert and Susquehanna, like just parched, parched earth and huge mountains of sand. And then the Western side is like violent surf, like, I mean, not like a relaxing beach, it's like enormous waves and enormous sand dunes. So it's kind of the kind of landscape that, um, it definitely felt like I was being sort of battered by beauty all the time. You know, it's not like, like right now I'm in Maine, which is so soft and lovely and, and wonderful for the senses and soothing. And maybe it's not like that. Like I felt very frazzled a lot of the time by the sun, sort of attacked by the sun. Um, and then, I mean, but then, you know, once I started to get my wherewithal, I just fell in love with it because it is so stark and, um, hot and surprising and the way you know it's a really hard place to live physically like the people that live there the locals are very hard they're um, tough because there's you know to, there's just no water <laughs> it's really hard to grow things um, if you eat what's there naturally you're going to eat chipped zebra <laughs> you know <laughs> right <laughs> so so, um, so it's kind of an assault on the senses in all senses of the word but that sort of from that um i think is born um a population of people with a very very wonderful sense of humor you know the sort of sense of humor that comes when death is just like so close because it happens all the time just it's not that the human life is less valuable it's just that things happen like people's jeeps roll over and they die or a child dies because there's a flash flood or someone gets eaten by a lion. I mean, this stuff happens all the time. People, so it's sort of like, wait, 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 wait. I got to stop you. I got to stop you. People like lions eat people regularly. Okay. Not, not, they're not, I know sometimes as a, I tend to exaggerate. They're not lions like roaming up and down the street, but, um, but, but yes, lions, you know, once a year, someone will get eaten by a lion. 
or like an elephant will come trample a, a, a village up north, you know, and a couple of kids will get trampled or, um, yeah, it's just, there's a, not a lot of people live there. And then, so the, and then, but people seem to be just like taken from, from the earth just constantly. Cause it's a very sort of a hard, violent, naturally place to live. And, um, so I just found, you know, I felt like my senses were heightened while I was there. My first week, so our, um, I moved there and I had a six weeks old baby. Um, so I was a little bit, not all of my senses were working anyway, but um, like the first week baboons, like a horde of baboons broke into our house to steal my son's baby formula. And like, <laughs> and baboons, you think like, oh, that's so funny. But then my mother, my mother was with us, who's in her 70s, and they started like banging on the wall to get to her. And she was screaming in fright. I mean, baboons are actually super scary up close. They have yeah. like these really scary yellow teeth and um, really they're they're very human, but like not empathetic human. <laughs> like I want to eat what you have human. Yeah. So, um, you know, just that that first encounter, I was like, oh, OK, I'm not in San Francisco anymore. This is like way 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 and i wasn't prepared at all you know i'm glad to hear um, you say that baboons are terrifying because you know we talk about anthropomorphizing animals and you know especially from a distance you know you grow up with popular entertainment and you see like the chimpanzees in a diaper and how cute they are and snuggly and but these things will fuck you up i am terrified oh yeah i'm terrified <laughs> of big apes like i i don't have I, like, I guess I would go on a guided tour to see the gorillas, maybe. I kind of feel like that's an intrusion anyway. But I think that I'd like to keep a safe distance from a chimpanzee. I don't, I mean, I like that they're there. I have great respect, but I want to give them space. I don't want to interact with them at close range. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't. Yeah, I had one sort of take, I was, it like, kind of grabbed a hat out of my hand once. And it was a hat that I really liked. So I was kind of fighting with it. Like, <laughs> but it just kind of swiped and slapped, you know, slapped me. I mean, they, yeah, they're mean. Um, but in, I guess that that's all to say that it's a very, you know, it is a completely different place. And it's, I think it's normal to be really disoriented once you step off, really only if you're flying, I don't know how else you would get there. Once you step off the plane, you know, it is, my, my children are overwhelmed. It was just, um, it was, yeah. But, but um, you know, going to someplace that different, I think is so wonderful for the senses and the brain and the and the spirit yes yeah i think it's great to take yourself out of your comfort zone what a great experience for your kids um i guess yeah the, the, i mean they didn't think so at the time brad but I think... <laughs> it's good for them it builds character <laughs> um yeah. but i want to you know you mentioned earlier uh like a bit ago this this term trailing spouse and i want to get you to define that for listeners who might not uh know your book and might not know what that means. Yeah. I didn't know what that was either until I was one. So my husband is a writer who I think you might know. His name is Peter Orner. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so he won a Fulbright, which was great. Um, and so we all went to Namibia. Um, and at the time I didn't think about, you know, I'm, I'm um, not one. I'm not someone that, you know, I do my own thing, Brad. I'm not, not used to like, I've never been called a trailing spot. So we got there and actually, I think someone from the state department said, well, Katie, there'll be events for trailing spouses every month. Like we have teas and 
I don't know, dance class and crafts and cocktails and all these kind of 50s, like, housewife things. And um, I was like, whoa, whoa, rewind? What did you just say? What did you what did you just call me? I was getting all, like, pissed. Um, and a trailing spouse, it's, like, actually, uh, you know, a pretty age-old career. Because in the State Department and in many diplomatic um, positions, and just in people who work internationally, often, if you have a family, both members of that family can't work because of visas or just, for example, in Namibia, they don't want to give someone like me a job because they want to give a Namibian a job first, right? So, and that's, I think, common in most countries. So there's, so it's a trailing spouse is a person, either the whatever partner that's just kind of like hanging out. <laughs> so, so there's a whole industry of like what to do with, especially in the State Department, what to do with a trailing spouse because, you know, imagine in, like, Jordan, where there's, like, an embassy of 2,000 Americans. That means there's, like, 2,000 trailing spouses, like, wreaking havoc. So, um, so yeah, so, the, so I found that. So that was something I didn't, first of all, didn't know that, didn't, hadn't processed that I was trailing, that I was kind of, this. I felt, made me feel like I was, like, the sandbag, you know? And I think I was... You know, is I don't. So my first, my first, I had my first child when I was 37, and through those years, I was very adamant that nope, we were partnership. Everything's equal. We do equal work. We're both writers. Everything is the same. And then I had a child when I was 43. That's Roscoe, and we moved it Namibia, and everything just fell apart. It was like, you know what? The, I'm not going to be able to keep this up. I'm not going to be able to run at the same pace. My partner's running out because I'm a mo mother and this kid needs me. And so all these things were happening when I was there. And um, I'm, uh, I have, you know, one of these, like many writers, I have um, depression issues. And so I was there and realizing like, oh, the, who I thought I was, I completely am not actually. And my role is completely not what it's supposed to be. <laughs> and um so that term trailing spouse became like a real live wire for me. And that's why I started the book because often when I'm in these spaces, I have to write my way out of it somehow. Kind of, every, I think every single book I've written has been that way. Um, and so I think that's why there's a lot of, yeah, that's a huge, and, and I like to make, you know, what I do is I take it and turn it and make myself laugh because if not, I would, you know, Cry. Off in the <laughs> Cry in the desert. <laughs> yeah, with a bottle. What, what do they have in, in they gin and tonics are very big there. Okay. Bottle of gin and um so yeah, so that that actually kicked off the whole thing was like who are the people what are the people doing that are not working? You know, often no, they're no, <laughs> many that, nefarious things they're doing. That's great. So. That's great context and it makes the book kind of come into sharper focus for me and uh, once again, I think for listeners, I, I want to have you define something. We've defined trailing spouse, but now I want you to define, if you would please, embassy wife, um, which I think, yeah. I, I guess, is like a, a kind of trailing spouse. Is that right? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, is, is, trail is embassy wife a subset of trailing spouse or vice versa? I mean, that's something. Okay, I made up that. I definitely made up that term from what I was seeing. So there's the trailing spouse, which is like the person likes me, like me who what you know might or may not work with the US government, right? But embassy wife is something 
And I, let's just be straight. I only studied a very small subset of the State Department in that I was at the Namibian embassy, right? I'm the American embassy in Namibia. So I was um, foolishly embraced by some State Department spouses who, you know, they knew I was a writer, but I don't think they knew how much I was absorbing. And um, being in the State Department is, it really is like 360 degrees of work. As in, you are there doing your job, but also you're you're representing your country no matter what you do, right? And so a lot of times the spouse or the partner will also take on that that job or that feeling of like, we must represent our country. If we are at a hotel, you know, you have to behave nicely because if not, it'll get back to bop-a-dee-boo, which is totally true. Like I, there was an incident where like <laughs> one of the diplomats I know uh, you know, he got wasted at some lodge and a pooper or something and the ambassador heard about it and he got a dress down. Like there's no part of your life that doesn't, doesn't sort of get back to the HQ. Um, and so it also, yeah, it's, it's the families have to comport themselves in a certain way. And, you know, maybe, and I sort of like, therefore took a fictional, just sort of made it turned it up to 11 with one of the characters. Her name is Persephone, who really, because at the time we had just moved there, we moved there on inauguration day of Trump's presidency. So all that stuff was percolating for me too, of like, okay, now what are we, who are we, rep <laughs> if we're representing our country, how are we doing that with this like, sorry, I don't know what your politics are, but this orange buffoon at the helm who's like, cursing and, and groping people and calling the whole continent that we're in this magnificent continent. I mean, I don't even know. I'm like, have you been here, Donald Trump? You can't calling it a shithole. Like it's so beautiful and like multifaceted. And I, I mean, what? <laughs> like, anyway, point is, um, I, I embodied all this in this embassy wife, this woman who, you know, maybe because she's American, thinks she has a lot to teach people in other parts of the world, which is something I saw, you know, I, and I see that all the time. You know, we know best, right? We're the Americans. And I, um, I mean, I didn't want to be didactic about it. It was just something like I was feeling like frustrated. So again, I started to spun it into the absurd, into this character, Persephone Wilder. But I think she's also lovable too. I loved her. Uh, no, I loved all the. This is the thing. Like, I found all the characters charming. Um, certainly flawed, just like any person. But I found all of them charming in their way. Persephone's irrepressible. You know, she's kind of uh, a force of nature. Uh, so you have her. She's like the uh, the like Uber embassy wife. Is that a fair way? She is the um, yeah. She's the embassy wife. She's really the one. Um, that's the, where the title came from. Um, and I don't know. I think it was just I was sitting. Yeah, someone said, you know, oh well, we represent the embassy at all times, even as wives. Someone said that to me, like a cocktail hour, and I was like, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's where that came from. So okay, so just to keep listeners oriented, you have this Persephone character because this is, you know, this is a book that's working on a lot of different levels. Or at least it was for me. You know, it is a satire, as you've alluded to, comedy of manners, um, also like a pretty deep and biting and intelligent uh, critique of American imperialism. 
like it, it's a send up and also a, a harsh critique of the Trumpian worldview. Um, you know, I think that's filtered in there. It's interesting to me, you know, when you said that you arrived on inauguration day and then you talked earlier about feeling like dislocated and, and depressed, uh, like how could you not be? I mean, and you're, you have a newborn, so you've had, you've gone through childbirth recently. <laughs> like, I mean, that's a lot yeah. of, that's a lot going on in somebody's life to uproot with a newborn, move to Namibia, right as Trump's getting inaugurated. Like, goodness gracious, no wonder you wrote this book. And, um, we're thinking so much and so deeply and so funnily, if that, that's the right adverb, uh, so, hum- so. so humorously about matters pertaining to American imperialism, personal identity, gender roles, misogyny, race, you know, all the things that you would confront there. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's understandable how you would have come to this story. And I'm also just like tipping my cap to you for, you know, taking all of that personal stuff and then finding a way to render it into something that's so entertaining and smart and funny. Like, you know, it's like, that's the, the alchemy of it, I guess. Thank you. You know, as I've gotten older, I think I rely more on humor. My earlier books were very earnest. If you ever pick them up, <laughs> my, especially my first book called girls and trucks. I mean, it has some funny lines. I had to read it for some, some sort of, I don't know why I had to look at it. Somebody wanted me to do some notes on it or something. Um, and I was like, Oh yeah, I like this, but, I was, but I would never write that way. Now it's like, it's just that my brain works differently. I think, um, yeah, it just really, it's like, it's like humor to, for me is like a rope swing, just like <laughs> get me out of where I am so that I, you know, can sort of get myself up a little higher. Um, but there were, and it's not, you know, I didn't, it's, I don't think one sits down to be like, I'm going to write a biting satire of American colonialism. You know, it just sort of, it just was there. It was everywhere, especially, I mean, in, the race matters, Black Lives Matters, all those, that, that really weighs heavily on me. I think, I mean, I've on everyone, but I um, grew up in Charleston, South Carolina um, in the 70s. You know, I moved there in 73, like five years after segregate, desegregation, right? So this is a very singular place where race was a big issue (laughs) and um and it's gotten better but um you know two years before we went to Namibia uh were the AME church shootings and unfortunately someone we knew really well was in the basement at the time so this is like this stuff is always you know (laughs) and I grew up in the part of Charleston where like everything's you know we don't talk about everything everything's fine but like, there's always this simmering of hate and violence that was going on, especially when I was young. Very, very much like apartheid, right? Just the same thing. So, um, so then going to Namibia, where like the lines of apartheid are so, so, just still drawn so deeply in the sand. You know, it's illegal, and the the country, the government is now run by um, the Avambo, mostly Avambo. But there are the so there's um, different tribes of, you know, there are 11 different tribes and then there's the Afrikaans people and then there's Germans and there's British people and just a 
potpourri. I mean, like the, the Namibian population is very um, diverse, but it's the government is now run by people of color, right? But still, all the wealth is held by the whites, and it's very it's interesting. Also, when you go there, you know, because here we're so careful about who say African American, who say white, da da da. There, it's like black white. That's just what they say, black white. <laughs> And um, it's it's it was like going backwards, like back to the '80s completely, because um, there's a lot of fear. Everyone lives behind a gate, so it felt like a reverb of my youth. And I think that it um, jolted me, and I couldn't not. I could. I was like, well, that, I'm definitely not going to not write about that, right? But how am I going to write about that? And um, and so I just was, you know, I was like, okay, well, let me, let me put all these characters together and make them all, you know, have equal weight so that we get sort of the perspective from everyone's side. And, um, and how am I going to write about someone from Namibia? I mean, that was something that weighed very heavily on me, right? Because this is a time when we're all very aware of like representing, you know, everyone having voices and we all want to hear those voices. Um, but I wanted those voices in my book, so what was I going to do, right? Um, and uh, so the way I solved it was just by just, you know, hanging out with people to the point of being annoying, like bringing my notebook, bringing my voice recorder, taking people to lunch, following them around, asking them annoying questions so much that they would be like, I don't really want to talk to you anymore, <laughs> you know? Um, and... Um, and I don't know, you know, I don't think it's, I just have these questions of like, how do we live in this world together? And it has been, now I'm 47 years old, right? And it's been, I've, this has been on my mind since I guess I've been three. When I first saw, you know, I think that was the first time I cognizant, like, was like, why is, why is everyone in my neighborhood look like this? And the people that work in the house look like this. And, you know, I'm, I don't quite, what's going on? Like, this has been like on my, not that I'm, it's just something I don't, you know, it's something, it's, it's something that's been a clash in my mind since I was very young. And so it makes sense that it would bubble up in this book pretty extremely. Um, and I think for, yeah. for people listening, uh, you talked about Persephone Wilder, who's the quintessential embassy wife. And forgive me if I'm missing something, but, you know, the, the story as it is built focuses i believe on three women there's persephone and then mm -hmm. there's amanda evans who uh i would venture as a proxy for you like loosely or you know she's kind of like more c closer to your experience you know of being on the ground in namibia just from a perception standpoint um obviously fictionalized but that's how i imagined her anyways yeah no you're right um yeah. and then you have mila shalongo who is the namibian woman who is the spouse of a uh, government operative or a government official in Namibia, um, mm -hmm. black woman. And, you know, a, I think a beautifully rendered character, but I relate, I can relate to the feeling of, uh, like feeling pressure around getting that right. Um, yeah. You know, taking that, making that creative choice, but then wanting to do it justice and get it be accurate. And I don't know, it's fraught territory. You know, I think you could easily slip up or make a mistake that, um, you know, I, I don't know, you could wind up regretting, uh, you know, in ways that maybe other characters might not 
um, cause you to do. So I, I felt like it was beautifully rendered, like you did your work. And um, the book kind of follows these three women, like both as they re- relate to one another, but also how they relate to their husbands. This is definitely a book about marriage, too, yeah. uh, among other things. But it, it very closely examines um, marital dynamics gender roles but like i thought like you know the uh, persephone's husband and her relationship with him um like very funny like his characterization yeah. is very funny there's a lot of great like humor in it but also like like accuracy you know in terms of uh the way that people behave men behave women behave um it's very insightful on that level as well so i just want to kind of give people an overview am, am i missing any characters i guess the children yeah, about, yeah the three there's it's mostly like the three women and then there well the, there's um i mean the, then i think i have one chapter narrated by their daughter the daughter because she kind of like and that's that's sort of at the end so that we get a different for i like to do that is to give like, oh, here's a new perspective on what's really going on, you know, because there's that whole funny like subplot. And, and then there's um, Frida, who works in um, Persephone's house. Right, right. Um, and she's just sort of, she has very few chapters too, but just sort of like grounding. And I really wanted her because, because so many times I'd be like, I feel like these, I feel like, you know, then this woman that's helping me out right now thinks I'm a total idiot. Like, you know, and she would always be like, no, I had, um, I was lucky enough to hire someone to help me with my child, but with Roscoe. And I was just like, a get just a bumbling. I mean, I was just a mess. So I, like, and I'd be like, Oh my God, you must think I'm just, you know, so nuts, you know? And she'd be like, no, no. But I really wanted to start a chapter with, I wanted like a chapter to start with, her saying, you know, actually, these Americans are complete idiots. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just really wanted that. That was the whole. And then I just, but I was fast, you know, I just wanted to have that, you know, the character of like the person that comes into the house and sees, because we, it would just be like, like, for example, I would, so Paulina, she's, she would, she was helping me with Roscoe and she would be like, you know, oh, this just fell out of your pocket and it would be a hundred nam bill, which is 10, like $8. And I'd be like, Oh, you know, that's fine. Just put it, just put it in like, or just, you can have it. You know, I, you know, I just like was so it's for the first couple of days. I was such a, when I got there, I was such, and I think I'm part of the, the book of self flagellation. Cause at the beginning I was just like a clueless, like, Oh, just put that hundred over there. It's fine. I'll use it to go to the whatever near the store so but that's like an enormous amount of money for for somewhere do you know what i mean sure so like um and like if you went to someone's house in catatora and saw how different it was in the place that that like for example i was living it's just it's insane the the dichotomy is not it's like nothing i'd ever seen before so i really wanted i you know i wanted somehow to 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 titrate that into the book as well of like just the absurdity of these, of, of, you know, oh, you know, my husband's, he's not here to help me with the barbecue, but like <laughs> literally down the street. I mean, you know, people are, yeah, it was, it was, it's just don't have enough to eat is what I'm trying to say. Like really don't have enough to eat. And it, it, it makes everything, I mean, it's 
it makes everything it just felt like a, a thumb pressing against my forehead the whole time I was living there of like we're here but just down the street that's happening and I don't know I don't know what to do that was a lot of it too and I think you know and I I tried to write about that too of like and that's the other thing one one thinks many many of us Americans go to countries like this and we're like we're going to help you know what I mean like I have skills and um you know no one wants our skill no we don't want your managerial help or this and it's um that is not helpful to us we have lived here for thousands of years what you know maybe you can give us some cash but right and so that's a rude awakening I, I saw that again and again and again of people that had just moved there i mean people who wanted to like go help the animals so they would go to this place, you know this place called non it's called not and it's a it's it's like a, at a retreat for animals, and their whole thing is um, they will you can pay them thousands of dollars to go like rehab cheetahs, but it's kind of a you know once you get there they don't really want you around they want you to stay <laughs> the hotel and just give money you know right. so just like it's just um, the the foolish just the 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 American outlook just kept coming up again and again and I mean I and like. And also, but you want to, when you write, write satire, you don't want to make everything which is one note. That was my fear too with like Persephone's husband, because um, I could see him and I could I knew what I thought of him. And then I'm like, well, I better deepen that thought, Katie, because or else he's you know he's gonna be just like a joke, you right, know? Right, right. So it's you know I felt like I had to. Um, work on my own empathetic behavior also towards the, you know, towards the people around the, the characters that I felt were behaving badly. Yeah. Well, and I think too, you know, you talk about like satire, comedy, comedy of manners, um, all the like cultural and social uh, critiques that you're making, the kind of the more serious elements of the book. And then you take into consideration plot. Like, this is a really entertaining novel. And I kind of marvel at it on that level because I think I, I, I don't know, I read literary fiction and nonfiction a lot. I guess I try to write that sort of stuff. And I loved how entertaining this was and how stuff happened. You know, like, it's like, it's always a good reminder for when I read books that do that sort of thing well, that the two are not mutually exclusive. Like a yeah, book, no, you can have something. You can have both. That's what I want to say is that like, you know, this book is certainly literary in its bearing, you know, if we're going to try to categorize it. But you also have a lot going on. There are plot threads that you're dealing with, you know, these three women as you're kind of like triumvirate of, I guess, Amanda's. Amanda was like the, the 1A protagonist for me. But Perse yeah, she's like the Trojan horse. But... Yeah. But Persephone yeah. and Mila have their own narratives that you had to juggle. Um, and... I don't know. There's just like a spirit of fun in it. Um, it's kind of interesting that it was born of a feeling of dislocation and depression. I guess it makes sense, but it's such a fun book, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And, and you know, I'm wondering when it comes to plot, you know, from a nuts and bolts craft perspective, like how much of this you had to map out beforehand, how much of it was intuitive as you got deeper into the story. Like, how do you do it? Like, how do you manage the feat? Mm hmm. Well, I always have a um, a question, sort of. Um, I mean, what, I, I think of it like 
material, like, 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 like silk, like, like I'm, so I knew the material for this was, okay, Namibia, huge, women, you know, gender roles, not that I'm thinking that, but I, mean, I think I'm like more feeling all this. I'm not thinking like gender roles. I'm thinking like feeling shitty as a, as a wife, not, not being where I want to be in life, which is like another way of saying gender roles, family, um, marriage, our marriage is supposed to be this long, you know? Um, and then politics, you know, so I have all these, it's a like kind of a feeling, but it's, I'm making like almost like a dress. I'm like, okay, so I have this, the, the, and I know it's going to be kind of funny in tone because that's what I'm feeling. Like I'm, I, re- I usually write the first chapter. I'm like, okay, this is going to be like, obviously this is like, I can see it's going to be like um, humorous. That's what I'm, that's, that's what I'm going to roll into as opposed to my the book before this, which I was in a completely different place, which is like a dark Gothic tale of death. Right. Um, and then I'm like, okay, well now I have this material. I need a mannequin, right? It has to have some sort of shape. So I have, um, I have the main character, always sort of my Trojan horse, who's usually similar to myself. <laughs> Sorry to say, I don't know what, you know, the craft people would say about that, but that's just the way it works for me. And then I, okay, I need, I need a couple other characters. So, I, so um, Mila, I knew pretty well who she was because um, I would see her at the school or my I mean, she's, she's somewhat, I model her off of like two or three women that I would sort of admire from afar at the international school. And then, and then the, Persephone was like a conglomeration of the, these other kind of women I would see. Then I'm like, all right, so now I have these characters. Now they all need something. So everyone needs a secret, right? Because we have to have, it's sort of like playing gin. Like you lay the cards so that later you can match them up, right? Um, and so as long as everyone has something, some sort of secret or something that they want that they can't get, then I'm okay. And I, I don't have to know what it, if it'll be solved. Like for, and the big one of course was like, and I always, uh, was like, Mark, Amanda's husband was going to find someone, a lost love from long ago. So like, I knew that was a thing. And I was like, okay, that's, I don't know how I'm going to solve that, but that's going to be the thing. Right. So he is a secret. And um, Mila is in a, a, a loveless marriage. And how's that going to be solved? Because she, you know, desperately wants to be accepted. And um, so that that can, you know, roll me for a while. And Persephone, you know, she thinks that her, well, she's just like, actually, she was pretty easy. But um, her her issue was that she thought her husband, halfway through the, the book, she decided that he was a CIA agent. But she didn't know if that was true or not. So, like, that's kind of the the humorous thing. And so how's that going to work out? And so like just laying the cards, um, it usually right around the 75% mark is when I freak out because something else has to happen. (laughs) And I'm like, Oh God. Um, but honestly, in every single novel, I think, what is this? I don't know. I've written some YAs. I guess it's my fourth literary novel. It's always kind of solved. It's it always just kind of comes to the subconscious. So I think if you do the work, or if I, at least if I, I can't say you, if I do the work of like really knowing these characters and really giving them human needs and things that they want, then the story 
solves itself at the end. And um, I've been comparing it recently to my student. I teach creative writing um, to songwriting, which is, um, and so we'll listen to songs, just like pop songs, like stanza, refrain, stanza, refrain. And then, and then there's the bridge right before, you know, and the bridge is where like, that's where you have the, that's where the, your novel has to really sing. It has to be either plot, like something as surprising happens, or maybe you like, bring a new character or you you change point of view something and if you if you don't have a perfectly plotted novel that's okay if you just do something like really amazing there you have a really good bridge people aren't going to notice i've read so many books like this where i'm like wow that didn't really make sense but i really loved what they did at the end of that book there so i'm gonna that's fine you know so i think um that's the one little trick i rely on if i don't have everything perfectly you know a lot of times, you know, they call it the refrigerator. You're in L.A. I've heard this, the refrigerator door question, where you go to a movie and you open the refrigerator later and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> what happened to the woman in the, you know, submarine? And, you know, I never heard, we never got to the end of that. Like, the refrigerator door question is, like, the thing that the author gets away with that doesn't quite get resolved. But um, but I think that if you do, if you wrap it up nicely, just do something surprising at the end, you'll you'll you can get away with not having a like James Patterson plotted book. Right. You know? Like, right. Like you can, you, there's a little bit more wiggle. And I think like, I think there's an element of, you know, you talk about like a novel that's plotted where you're, de you're dealing with multiple character storylines and it's got some comedic qualities and some kind of like pop entertainment qualities. And I don't say that in the pejorative. I want to make sure to underline it. I, I think it's actually a virtue. Um, I, I wish I had more of it. I think I'm kind of jealous of, uh, of having that sensibility, but it, it was a reminder to me that like I, I was along for the ride and thoroughly content. Uh, even though if I'm being honest, the plot lines might have resolved themselves to a degree that they might not in real life. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. Like no, no, no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like <laughs> like I was like, "Oh yeah, like this is like this is fair game in storytelling and it works. Like it it's okay. Like I for some reason I can get lost sometimes thinking that you know, plot has to mirror real life or something. Do you see what I'm getting at? Like Yeah, no, I totally do. And my, you know, my so I watch Shit's Creek with my daughter. Do you, I don't know if you ever watched that show. I have, it's about, yeah. Yeah, okay. And she's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. They bought the town, so do they own the motel? Because it seems like they don't, you know, and I'm like, honey, it doesn't matter. It's just like, <laughs> right. it's a just go with it. It's really right. funny. Listen to David Rose. Look at Moira. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, I think um, if you really fall in love with the things that you're doing that are fun, that are making, you know, as long as it's fun for you, I think it's going to be fun for your reader. I really believe that, like. Like, um, which is why, to be honest, like abroad, which was not fun to like, not fun to write. I was like really cathartic. And people are like, that was not a fun book to read, Katie. That was all about like a woman and who, like a young girl who gets raped and dies at the end. I'm like, okay, sorry. But this book, like, I, <laughs> and and I was really I, wait, I should interrupt. I should interrupt. Abroad is one of your previous novels. Yeah, yeah, and it, you know, I was in, a, you know, I was exploring something there. It was whatever. It's fine. I mean. I think it's a great book, but whatever. But it's like this book, I was really just like every time I sat down, I was like, 
I'm turning something sad into something fun for myself. Um, and I think, I think people are reacting to that, but, um, but yeah, the plot, you know, I wasn't, yeah, I think, I think one can get to like, Oh, is this plot going to, does this make sense? And it doesn't, yeah, it's this story. It doesn't have to make sense because everything makes so much. I mean, we have so much things, so many things that have to make sense in real life, you know, like, especially now. Yeah. Where are my children? Right. Can I go outside? Right. Do I have to wear a mask? Who cares? Let's just like, let's just write a fun, you know, let's wrap it up in a fun way where I, my, my characters get to spin off into oblivion. I mean, I don't think it can be so out there that like, it's not authentic to the story. You know, it can't be like the end of Lost. And I know I love pop culture, obviously. I think if you're, listeners know what watch the end of lost they'll understand you can't do something just like complete and and not piss people off who have been with you for 300 pages but um but i think it can be joyful and and um and a little yeah a little fantastic fantastical fantastic um did you like did you go through uh, like heavy i'm assuming you probably did multiple drafts and like getting all the storylines tied up because it's one thing to have like a single protagonist, you know, who's driving the thing, but you had like, you were juggling multiple things here. Was it, did that make it tougher? Like, was it a greater feat? It seemed that way to me reading. I'm just curious if you really had to spend time kind of uh, working on each individual thread and making sure that it was tied up properly. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't do them separately. I definitely do. I'm like, okay, this and this and this, but, um, yeah, and, and my, honestly, my um, agent is wonderful, and he reads stuff, and he'll be like, love this and this number. This doesn't make sense right here. I don't know what, <laughs> what's going on, or like, there's scar tissue here, um, and um, my editor also helped a lot with things that didn't quite, you know, some things didn't line up, but um, I don't know. It was pretty organic. I don't know. It's pretty organic for me. I, I've, I've, once I, I found in something, and I was like really in it. I wasn't doing anything else, Brad, in Namibia, really. <laughs> There's nothing to do. Right. But work on like, this book. Yeah, just work. I mean, you know, I, I, I was taking care of my kids, but I, again, one Paulina, who I dedicated the book to, she was helping me. And I just, um, you know, I, yeah, I was just really in it. So I just knew I when I sat down, I was like, oh, yeah, I know where I am in this, you know. Hmm. Um, so I... Uh, and I think I wrote, I had a little, I don't, you know, I had a little drawing. So I always try to like plot it out. Like I look at, every time I start, I'm like, I'm going to look at save the cat. And right. This and that. And right. That, and do the thing. And I started doing, I get really depressed. And then I just sort of like, <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, that's too many steps. But, um. But I think, but I think that, uh, that kind of exercise, even if it ultimately proves futile, like in quotes, it's still, I think it can still be useful. Like oh, even, for sure. Even and if on like a subconscious level. I mean, who at those, uh, is it Sam? Someone, I mean, what, to be able to like take a, a narrative and break it down into beats like that is like, I can't, it's just blows my mind every time I look at it. Um, and I think it, I think it does help at least, I usually do like four or five beats because it does, it gives me confidence of like, oh, okay, this might have legs. I'm doing it now with the book that I'm sketching out. Just like, and I don't know how it's going to end, but I know there's like a death and there's like some inheritance and there's some characters. And, but then like, is it, a, you know, 
like, is it a murder? You know, and right now I'm like at the very, very beginning of this thing. And, um, and I, you know, I always am like, oh, I should look at the plotting stuff to give myself some, some, uh, confidence. I, well, that, no, I'm like, it's not surprising to me. You mentioned save the cat, which I love, you know, like, I think it's a, I mean, it's a useful tool, you know, just to, to think about the basic mechanics of storytelling and what makes a story appealing to an audience, which kind of should be an elemental concern for anybody trying to write a novel uh, or a a screenplay. Like, I think that can sometimes get short shrift. It's like, oh, wow, you know, what, how do these things work? If you're building these and you, you know, like compare it to like watchmaking, just as an example, like, well, how is a watch built? How do the how do the different pieces fit together? You know, yeah. it seems like the sort of thing anybody who's trying to write would consider, but uh, you know, I've failed to do so in the past. So, I think it's a I think it's a good thing to do, and I definitely felt a cinematic quality to your book. Um, I'm wondering now, like, do you have are, are there any plans to adapt it? It feels like the kind of thing that could be adapted. Um, I could see it happening. Yeah, it's been optioned, and then that, and then they didn't want that, so now it's being optioned again. Um, so it has been. People seem to be interested in it. I that that's something I have really don't understand and don't know anything about. It would be great. They see. Uh, I have someone that's you know the agent. And there's they are studios interested in it. Um, but we would, you know, every time I go through this, I feel I feel very detached from Brad at this point from that process because I feel like when I talk to and I no offense to Hollywood, but I spend a lot of time like on the phone. Y'all seem to have a lot of um, at least y'all the studio people seem to have time for meetings because like five people will get on the phone with me and they'll tell me how great it is and they'll ask me who I see as the cast and I'm like oh, I don't know how about. Elizabeth Banks or uh, <laughs> like right. I, I, Mark Ruffalo. And they're like, okay, we'll write that down. I'm like, you will? Wow. And then we'll get back to you. And then, you know, they buy it and then I never hear <laughs> Yeah, so it's such bullshit. It's, <laughs> so now I'm just really like, you know, well, I would love it. I hope some, you know, that would be terrific. I see so many, like I just watched White Lotus. Yes. And, I was gonna. I was going to bring that up when you were talking about what's the name of the character who works for Persephone. Oh, Frida. Frida. Yeah. When you were talking about Frida, I was like, "Oh, this is like covering similar thing because I just watched White Lotus, and it's not quite the same, but it's it's similar, you know, because it's the perspective of the domestic worker in your book. You know, these so pe- similar. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. And then in White Lotus, this Mike White series that's on HBO, it's about the people who work at one of these like luxe resorts in Hawaii, I think it is. Yeah. Um, and 10, it's one of these places where service, like elite service is, is what they're selling essentially, along with like, you know, the manicured grounds and the perfect rooms and all the rest. But um, I think it's, I love it because it's a story that needs to be told. Like, what are these people going through? People who are domestic workers who help you with childcare um, or who clean the house or who you know, do any number of jobs on premises are often like working really intimately with you. Like you spend more time, especially in the early days of parenthood. I've been through this. Like we had someone who helped us with our daughter when we were working and it was like, you get to know these people and they also see you day in and day out in your environment, you know, your home environment 
and get a lens on you that is uniquely intimate. Uh, what are they thinking? <laughs> I have that yeah. thought, you know, like what do, do they, am I okay? Like compared to the other people they work for, you know, in the past, like how do I grade out? And then what are these people in the, in the white Lotus series? You know, what are these people who spend all this time tending to, I guess, rich people on vacation, but who also not to, you know, not to caricature them. And I think Mike White's show does this nicely is that they, they come with all their human stuff too. You know, so it's just, it's interesting territory and it's not often communicated. I think that's one of the things that was appealing about your book is that there are all these intersecting lives and, you know, you do a nice job of kind of humanizing everyone and trying to give everyone's, everyone's life and experience some time under the microscope or in the light, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you. I, yeah. Well, so anyway, I guess the point was, if whoever made that show wanted to make Embassy Wife, then I think I would perk up and be like, oh, that, yes. Yeah, that kind of, I think that kind of sensibility would serve your story very well. <laughs> yeah. um, so. You know, but yeah, the, all the stuff about the meetings and the, it's all such bullshit. Like, you're smart to sort of be detached from it because it makes absolutely no sense. And I think, I have this theory on Hollywood that there are like maybe three people in the entire town who can actually make anything happen. Um, it's probably <laughs> a little bit more than that, but like everybody else is just yeah. pretending. Actually, and Brad, it's not that I'm smart. It's just like the first time, I don't remember what, you know, eight years ago, I was like, wow, mom, guess what? Guess what, everyone? <laughs> right. <laughs> Facebook and options and it's going to be, you know, and everyone's like, yeah, I'm sure. Okay, right. Katie. Right. right. <laughs> now I'm like, oh, God, yeah, I get it. <laughs> But hey, but the fact that it's been optioned is still good. It's, it's still nice. good. Not every book gets optioned, you know? So somebody no. somebody read it and saw something in it. And um, I certainly saw that in it. I think it would make a wonderful um, adaptation in the right hands. You know, it always comes down yeah. to in the right hands. But um, I want to talk a little bit about wildlife a little bit more. We mentioned lion attacks earlier and you were talking about how Lots of Americans in the Foreign Service get on the ground there and like want to be do-gooders and like save the animals. <laughs> uh, and yes. there's a great subplot in your book involving a rhino, uh, yeah, or like rhinos plural. You know, wanting to protect the rhinos, and then there's one individual rhino who lives on Mila's like, you know, gorgeous kind of like uh, Xanadu like country ranch, you know, you, you rendered that yeah. really well. I don't know if you have any, because I've been to some, you have, people okay. have those. I mean, it just seemed, yeah, it seems so crazy the way that I remember reading that section of the book, the way the characters got there, how you're kind of in this, like no man's land, there's nothing around. And then you turn off of a dirt road and drive 30 miles. And then way back there, there is just this like deluxe property and ranch and mansion. And, um, I don't know. It seems like a feat of architecture and um, like engineering. Like, how do you get water? Well, back there, there are. Yeah. When they, when it was a German colony, there were a few just crazy German, you know, oligarchs that built castles in the middle of nowhere, like real castles. And um, so this was one. It was um, there's one called Duiseb Castle, which was like you can go visit that one. That's a national landmark. But I, this the one I wrote about was a it's a private private resort or private farm they call them farms farm <laughs> you know farm. that someone has money when they're like come visit my farm and I'm like, okay <laughs> uh -huh. it's not a farm it's like, it's like 
out of Africa kind of, she, hers was like, I had a farm, you know, but it's always like this kind of huge ranch hacienda thing. Um, and that was interesting because that place was really German and they had, um, so my, we're mixed faith. My husband's Jewish and, um, you know, the proprietor of this hotel had, he's like, I have a Nazi flag. I have a Nazi flag. Do you want to see it? We're like, no, like, but he, like they, he had pictures of his ancestors in like the forties because they, that a lot of um, Nazis went to Germany. At the, I mean, went to Namibia at that time to sort of escape or be themselves. So the late forties and early fifties, you would have like full on, yeah, just oh, that's in the book. Yeah, full on, not full on, just like Nazis living there. <laughs> just wow, like, it was a thing, and so we felt. I said that made us feel like I'm. We were like, oh, this is really. We feel. We were there with some friends who really loved the place because it's like this. You go and it's a castle and it's intimate and it's just your family and they serve for you weird German sausages and it's all like, uh, singular and there's oryxes and you can go shoot a zebra whatever, which is not something that we did but then you know at night when the guy was like kind of drunk and like look at my nazi flags felt really uncomfortable yeah that's so that's wild um and creepy and like do you I mean do you think was it like as a historical relic or was he like actually prideful about like you know what I'm saying? Like how bought in was he? I don't I don't know. We didn't we didn't sit down and be like, Well, Hans, what is your stance on Judaism now <laughs> in like two thousand sixteen? We wonder. You know, it was just more like, Oh, that's weird. <laughs> um because there, it's just like you know so fraught. Like I I um ended up hanging out with a lot of uh, with a group of Afrikaans. And Afrikaans are um white Afrikaners, right? They're Dutch, South Africans, but they are the make up most of the white community in South Africa. And like, um, if you hear that accent, that South African accent, it's white Afrikaans. And, um, part of what, one thing I, we're getting in, I hope I'm not getting in the weeds, but one of the things I did to get out of my depression was join CrossFit, <laughs> which is like, not something normal that I would do. Like I'm kind of a walker, a yoga person. And I'm like, well, you're, you know, I don't know. Let's, I'll try this CrossFit. And there I like, that is like white Afrikaans. Like they love it. Cause they love like showing how tough they are. Their whole thing is like, we are more African than Africans are. Like, they're always like, we are the ones that really should rule. Like if you get really, really hardcore with them, um, you know, I've heard people say awful things like, I mean, I felt like I was in that movie. I keep talking about movies, but I felt like I was going undercover sometimes because what people would say to me, because they'd think that I was of their ilk, things like, oh, we should exterminate all the blacks so that we can rule this country properly. Whoa. I had literally heard someone say that as I was doing a king or a Kong or what is a king? What am I talking about? Some sort of lift. And um, so, like, when you hear racism, like, is that extreme, then, um, you know, anti-Semitism just seems like it's like a little dollop on the side. You know? <laughs> I mean, it, it was, um, you know, that was the kind of racism that I was facing, looking at, like, just like the kind where, like, you don't want to say anything because you I don't want to get this really scary person mad at me. 
I'm just going to, I'm just going to burn some sage here in your weird Nazi castle. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) you know, try to get the evil uh, spirits out. And, um, I mean, then I was like, well, I think I'll stop going to CrossFit now with the crazy racist people, you know, (laughs) but like, um, you know, that kind of thing, like it's deep there. It's super deep and, and scary. So, um, and, yeah. and not, like you said, not dissimilar to the Southern milieu of your youth. Yeah. Um, I thought like I, I had this, this occurred to me earlier and I didn't get to it, but the Persephone character feels lifted from that terrain as well. Like a particular kind of Southern woman. Am I misremembering her? She's Southern, right? Yeah. No, she's Southern. She's from, yeah, she's went to university of Virginia and I pictured her having, she was at, like grew up on a gentleman's farm. Uh huh which is like a thing in the, in the South you have. So similar. Yeah. Um, I just liked that because I thought I liked, you know, I like having things that sort of parallel each other. Um, but yeah, she's Southern, but I don't know if that comes up, but she's, um, I don't know why I had her from the South. I just, cause I'm from there, I guess. So I knew who she was, but she's like, just... she's like, to me, she's like, I don't know, because you can talk about the American South in this monolithic way. You can talk about South Africa or countries affected by um, apartheid in the past in a monolithic way. And it's not the case. You know, I found Persephone, maybe you didn't. I found her likable. It seemed like you liked mm. her on the page quite a lot. I know. I loved her. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I really liked her. I think she was my, you know, she really came. I don't know where she, she's just sort of like, she was so easy to write. She was just like, she really just came out. Um, I think she was there to cheer me up, but like she said, she's very flawed and it's not that she's like, she thinks she's not, you know, she thinks she's not, that's the thing. And I, I had, you know, there are all these things that you say and you're like, Oh, I shouldn't have said that. And I was like, I'm going to have Persephone say all those things. (laughs) (laughs) I think that they're like, you know, like, Oh, just take my, take my clothes. You know, it'll be fine. Let me just solve this problem by giving you some money, you know, um, not bad. It's not like the intentions are bad. Well, but you know, what's interesting to me is, uh, is this notion of people being flawed. You know, we always talk about characters being flawed. You talk about Persephone and how she became this kind of mouthpiece for all the things you're not supposed to say. And then we also often, I think in the context of writing and fiction and reading, talk about how much we love our characters, you know, even though they're flawed. Yeah. I feel like, some of that has been lost in contemporary times when it comes to real people. Like I feel like sometimes if a person's flaws get pointed out and um, it's like, they're suddenly unworthy of love or they're only worthy of condemnation. And I can find myself confused by that, especially when I watch it happen online sometimes. Um, it It isn't that the flaws aren't flaws. It isn't that the flaws don't need to be corrected. But I mean, everybody's flawed. Everybody's a mess. You know, I don't know a single person who's not. And it's like navigating that and still having love for people and accepting them kind of on their own terms and hoping for the same. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think there there are different kinds of flaws. So you have to parse it that way, too. Like some people who might be like reveling in having Nazi paraphernalia, for example, have like a different kind of flaw. But I don't know, just like some patience and tolerance for human beings of all kinds, you know, not just one kind, but all humans, you know, and I don't know, your book was kind of a nice reminder of that as well. Like, because you're dealing with so many different characters and so many different storylines and so many different perspectives. 
um, you do a nice job of creative empathy, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Oh, thanks. I mean, it's come with empathy. <laughs> empathy is something that come with, it's come with age, but yeah, but I try to, you know, so, and I, uh, if I get really angry, like, like Hans, let's talk about Hans, the Nazi. Yeah. So easy to write him off. F and Nazi. Right. You know, weirdo. Right. What's his, you know, um, but you know, he, that was his family's farm. He didn't, hasn't known anything else. He grew up there. His, um, son left. He thought his son would take over, but his son left and went to the United States. And he, he was like, you know, his thing was, he was just really lost. Like his family farm was, he's, he was probably going to have to sell it because no one else wanted to take it over. And he was just sort of wasting away out there in the, they called the Veld, which is the desert. Um, so, you know, there's always something, everyone has their thing, you know, that you can, one can identify with. Does that make him great? No, but, um, I can definitely write about him now, right. you know? Right. So like, what is that thing? You know, I just got mad at someone the other day for something silly and, I, and like, I'm still a little bit annoyed with this person, but I'm like, okay, well, let me think about it. Like this person, you know, it's just, this person's going through a divorce. This person doesn't have a lot of money now and used to, you know, what is that like? Like, would that make you act out? Yes. I mean, do I, am proud? Am I always like that? No, it takes me, it can take me a couple of weeks to be like, right. <laughs> let me turn that around. But I do find it really useful. And, um, definitely in fiction, if I find things are getting too one sided, I'm like, okay, wait, that's not, that's not interesting. What's interesting is like, what makes the unlikable person human? That's, I think, and that's like why I love fiction. I love reading it. I read so much, you know? Sure. And those are the kind of books I really like. So, so what has been, like, have you been able to gauge response from people with whom you formerly shared territory in Namibia from your time there? Like, have they read the book? Was there, was there concern? You know, I know in the acknowledgments. I mean, I'm definitely worried. My, like my Namibian friend, like my, I had Namibian people. I had like a very, like my, this Namibian journalist that I like revere Denver Kisting. He, I had him read it like, um, line by line. And we spent like, you know, hours on the phone correcting things. And make, so I know that like, in the, like, I think my Namibian friends like it. I don't know. I haven't heard much from my state department sister wives, <laughs> you know, like, um, I was very close with some, you know, I, and you know, I, one of them wrote and said, you know, oh yeah, I really liked it. But I think, you know, it can, it can be a little close to home for some people. Yeah. But, um, I hope that they know that, you know, satire is a form of love. Right. And, you know, I really did. I really did love the women that supported me. I just felt like I, there were some things like, you know, there's some things, state department things that people don't like to talk about. Like the pouch, the diplomatic pouch is a huge thing. Who has, who has, um, who has access to it and who doesn't. And what it is, is it's a big, like, basically container that goes back and forth from the United States to um, to Namibia so you can get your things as if you're just sending them in the U.S. Because, like, if I sent, like, this book to Namibia, it would be, like, for myself, like, 150 bucks. And it'll get there and the box has been opened and maybe half of it's torn out. It's really hard to mail things. So, like... But you're only supposed to send like in the diplomatic pouch, like medicine or, but like something that I, I found hilarious was like people would like Amazon things 
like cereal, <laughs> you know, and that's all in there. Are like Charmin toilet paper. And that's all something that like we, the taxpayer are paying for. So, you know, that is like something I, you know, I think my, they probably would rather me not write about that, but that's something that I was like, as a writer, I can't not write about that. Cause that's topical and hilarious. Like, right. So, um, so, but things like that, I think probably are why I'm not hearing, you know, I'm, I, I've gotten some radio silence for sure. Well, it's, some, yeah. I mean, I get it. I get it. You know, it can, it's tough to be around a writer, you know, what's the Joan Didion line? The writers are always selling people out. Like it's kind of comes, yeah. it comes with the territory. You're there. You can't turn your brain off. You're absorbing things and you're going to write about your experiences. But, um, I think the world that you're covering was of keen interest to me because I knew so little about it. And I know, like you said earlier, that the Foreign Service and the State Department and its activities on the ground in Namibia, it varies wildly from country to country. But there are some basic mechanics that I think are the same. There's the insularity, you know, the yeah. fact that when you're there on the ground as an American and you're the spouse of a Foreign Service uh, worker or you're the Foreign Service worker, um, that's like a little contained universe. And you talked about living in this kind of bifurcated society where, you know, the, the diplomats and the foreign service workers and the richer people lived kind of on one side of town in a certain set of circumstances behind a gate and people of lesser means were living in entirely different circumstances elsewhere. You know, not only is that just a basic like financial, um, issue, but it also needs to be said, and I, I think this is the case, that when you are working for the United States Foreign Service, they source housing for you, do they not? Mm -hmm. So you get there and there's this kind of like turnkey life waiting for you. Like it's odd. It's odd. And uh, I have to imagine, um, I mean, I cannot imagine going through that as a writer of fiction and not writing about it. It's like a ready-made world, you know, to a degree that's unique. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so many things, you know, and then they, you jockey for position, like, and it matters, the more important you are, the bigger your house is, like, it's, just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the higher, like your square footage is like by, yeah, well, your rank, I mean, it's all, um, it's, fa you know, I was like, I can't believe it's this black and white, but that, of course it would be, because that's the government, like, they has to have these like ironclad rules. And I found the social thing really interesting too, is like, you would never like talk directly to the ambassador at a party you know because that's unless you were you know you don't socialize with the ambassador you can and you socialize with like the other diplomats the other people who work in the embassy but you know the ambassador keeps her his distance but like so we saw that why because Wait. we weren't why is that yeah why can't the why can't you talk to the ambassador well if you work for him or him or her then um they're trying they don't want um you know, you don't, it's like being at a company, like you don't want to be playing favorites with your employees and it, cause it's so like everyone lives together. So like if, if I'm, um, an ambassador and I'm spending time with the public relations affair, public affairs person, um, like on the golf course or like over for dinner, then maybe the legal counsel person and their wife or husband is going to get pissed off because, well, what, why aren't they having us over for dinner? You have to like make everything super equal. It's like junior high. Really open. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, 
And that is very, so, the, so, so like socially thing, and this probably does not have, and I have spoken to people, like I know a woman who's, she was a trailing spouse in Paris. She's like, this was not like that in Paris, you know, where you can like have a life like Paris or London or, but like in places that are remote, like Namibia or like Zambia or, you know, Kazakhstan, I think, I think it, it really is. Well, yeah. yeah, in your book, you know, underscores that there are people who are career foreign service professionals who bounce around from world capital to world capital and spend their entire lives abroad, basically their entire lives and careers working these jobs and living in these, I mean, I, I guess I would call them bubbles, but like, I don't know. I kind of found myself envying it a little bit. I'm like, that sounds kind of cool. Like you just get to go live all over the world. And, um, you know, the, it's, it's a complete career path, you know, for some people anyway. Yeah. I don't think it's cool. I don't think, I think it's really hard. I think it takes a real, you have to be someone that will follow rules to the letter. Um, someone that is able, and, and let me tell you these, and I you know, it's a satire, but at the, I was really impressed by these trailing spouses because they'd be like, okay, we're going to move now in two months to like Kazakhstan. And one woman was moving to Istanbul. She's like, all right, let's get it, let's get it packed up. You know, let's, the kids are now going to, start withdrawing from their friends because we don't want them too emotional when, you know, so we're going to start doing like family only trips. No, no play dates. Um, we're going to, you know, start getting rid of all the, the flat Sam and like, this is color coded and you know, they, they're just really good at like, at like packing up and not like, it's not like, Oh, you know, we pack a backpack and go to Thailand or oh, let me get a duffel kids that we're going to like, whatever. I mean, they have to pack up their, everything and their emotions as well like i saw them starting to like withdraw from like friends because they're moving right it's gonna be over now and um and that makes their family unit really insular like they all have to i you know um they had like the ones that were successful had like very like um strong sort of inner family traditions almost like cult of personality you know because you're like well we're the like proud turners so we can do this you know they had like like we're my families were kind of fast and loose with rules and like we don't like i don't know but like like the i found like the state department families were like to the letter like no we do this this way and we have dinner at five no matter where we are because so our kids know the where what the deal is you know right because if not they go kind of go spinning off into like um the stratosphere so um i don't want to belittle that because like they did something that like I could not do. I mean, we were a disaster. We left. Like, it was like we were refugees. <laughs> like our plane was leaving. We had so much. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah. So much, so much shit. And like we were just like shoving things and like throwing things to people and being like, just take it, just take it. Because <laughs> like, our plane was leaving, and then we like left and we got home. We're like, oh, we left all our stuff there because we didn't know how to pack. You know, we're just like when you. It's just like it's huge, like a huge endeavor to move a family after two years. That's how long you were there. Um, you were there for two years. We were there, yeah, maybe a year and eight months or so. We were supposed to just stay for a year, but we liked it, so we, you can extend. So what, yeah, like we, extend, we like what? Peter was on a Fulbright. Your husband is that right? Mm -hmm. He's in a Fulbright. Um, he he's writing a book about. A <laughs> like, let me see if I can get this straight. A German resistance. No. Um, a resistance fighter during the German occupation in the early 20th century. There was like a, the, they, 
they they like wiped out an entire tribe of people and there was one like rebel soldier that he's really interested in so um he's was went to research that person whose name is Henrik Whitboy but then like um he didn't do enough research so we had to go back of course um and um and but yeah so then and he was also teaching at the University of Namibia and um yeah you can just i think you know once you're there if you make a good case for yourself the um if you have enough good work behind you you can appeal to the fulbright foundation and they'll or it's not a foundation department right and then they'll extend your stay a little bit oh cool 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 so yeah. you you know i think the the last thing I want to say about the Foreign Service and the State Department, uh, like, is a uh, drawn from a scene in your book where the ambassador compares running an emb- you know, running an embassy to running a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know there's some tongue in cheek there, and you know, you're being kind of funny, but I I think there's some truth to it. Like, what the hell happens at the U- U.S. embassy in Namibia? I could imagine like an embassy in like a hot, you know, a hotter part of the world, not weather-wise, but you know what I mean, like politically where there's more heat and controversy and danger or whatever, like where it would be maybe a more high-stakes situation. But there are embassies tucked away all over the planet and a lot of the job is ceremonial or like, what are you doing? Like that's, I think that was what was fascinating to me is like thinking about like what the actual day-to-day is for people who are working in these outposts. On behalf of our country all over the planet, you know, like what 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 happens there, and is it that way? Is that pretty accurate? Did you actually hear somebody say that, or is that uh is that just kind of like your take? No, and... I just observed it. No, a lot of it's just keeping people happy. I mean, um, yeah, I think like yeah, I definitely you know when you think of like in Afghanistan right now, I think it's a little different. Yes, but like right, um, but mo- most of the work that goes on it's just like well let's just make you know um let's you know put on a good face and has the you know does as any news come to the united states about this country like in the last month then like i guess we'll write a press release about it you know it's it's very like sleepy um and yeah i think it is very service oriented um but yeah i i just thought that because just going to one of the um embassy like going to many embassy ceremonies and seeing like sort of the way it it was all just sort of like spinning plates (laughs) making everyone feel like calm right um seemed to be like most of the most of the work that they're doing well i thoroughly enjoyed it um my family's home i know i can hear them coming so i'm gonna let you go (laughs) i know how that goes but i really enjoyed your book i'm glad we got to uh spotlight it in the book club this month um Kudos to you for pulling it off and for getting most of your things back to the United States from your time in Namibia. Thank you. Uh, And uh, I wish you luck on this next book. I know you're in the early stages, so it's probably not fully uh, ironed out. Well, I just finished one, actually. Oh, you did? I just sent off one. Yeah. So now I'm germinating the next one. Well, what's okay. So what's the one you finished? Can you describe it? It's called, yeah, it's... um, it's called you're gonna love it here and it's about it's like i would say sort of another gender roles book but it's about a woman who um she starts finding um dead bodies around town that are dressed up as her and um so kind of the hilarity 
ensues from there. It's about <laughs> I was going to say. It's about a um, professor's wife living in Vermont. Okay. Okay. Well, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, great, great fun talking with you, Katie. Congrats again. Best of luck. And I'm so honored that you picked the book for the book club. Thank you so much. No, Very it's... Very honored. Uh, yeah, no, it's a perfect book, uh, I think, for... I mean, I don't know. I don't want to be too cute about it, but this time of year... I don't know. Yeah. I just loved it. I think it, they did a nice, your publisher did a nice job of picking when to release it. I was like so in the mood for something like it. And it was just so uh, smart and funny and entertaining. And I think uh, I've got to believe it's going to do well. I mean, I, you must be hearing nice things, right? Yeah, no, the reviews have been good. I don't, um, I, I don't look at sales because I find it terrifying, but I'm certainly the reviews have been I've been, you know, been lovely. Some, you know, so they're very, some of them, um, I mean, they haven't all been like, it's amazing, but I've, you know, really have been, um, so honored that it's been so thoroughly reviewed, I guess, like deep reads and people really saying thoughtful things, not just, you know, so I, I, um, yeah, I've been, it's been terrific. Awesome. It's been, yeah. Yeah. Well, congrats to you. I will let you get back to your, um, are you on vacation in Maine? It sounds like you're in Maine with some family hanging out. Sometimes it doesn't feel like a vacation. <laughs> well, but well, yeah. this will be your, not the next book, but the next, next book will be all about yeah. a family uh, on vacation in Maine and a woman who is not you, but could feasibly be you evaluating whether <laughs> yeah. or not she feels like she's on vacation. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, maybe. Hey, well, thank you so much. All right, everybody. There you have it. That is Katie Crouch. Nice conversation with her. Her new novel, Embassy Wife, is available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It is the official August pick of the TNB Book Club. You can find Katie on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Katie A. Crouch. One more time, the novel is called Embassy Wife. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. This show is offered to you freely. If you listen regularly and you like the show, I hope you'll consider supporting the show. It's a listener-supported show. If you want to do that, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod for as little as $1 a month. You can support this show. There are different tiers for every situation, different tiers, different levels of support. $1 a month, $3 Uh, $5,000, whatever you like. And there are also goodies included. I will write you a postcard. You can get a coffee mug, a tote bag, sticker, a t-shirt. I will wish you a happy birthday. For the love of God, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have something to say to me and you would like to write an email... The email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com. You can also consider acquiring the uh, Other People app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. It's available where apps are available. It's an easy, convenient, wonderful way to follow and listen to this program. New episodes upload automatically. The Other People app. Don't forget as well that the Other People show has its own YouTube channel now. That's a relatively new development this year. All episodes of this show are available on YouTube. Go subscribe to the Other People with Brad Listy uh, YouTube channel. To find it on YouTube, search it by name, Other PPL. 
You can also rate and review the show if you're feeling generous over at uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, what have you. It helps the show find new listeners when you do that. All right? All right. All right. All right.